Welcome, welcome everyone to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's new podcast that hopes to model civil engagement on ideas. We run the gamut from, uh, well, center left to center right, <laughs> but um, lest people scoff about this, I think that's kind of where the country needs to go and the country be a lot better off. Well, who am I? I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Linda Chavez, a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center, Damon Linker of the Week, who is with us from Philadelphia, Bill Galston of the Wall Street Journal and Brookings, and our special guest this week is Eli Lake, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. So welcome, one and all. Good, Good to be, to be back. here. This is our, Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. It's glad We're so glad you could make it. And uh, this is our second podcast, and you are our first guest. So congratulations. An honor. Yeah, there'll be all kinds of fantastic prizes. Um, <clears throat> okay, so um, let us begin with foreign policy, news out of the Middle East. On Sunday evening, following a phone call with Turkey's President Erdogan, President Trump announced that the U.S. would withdraw the small number of troops keeping the peace in northeast Syria's Kurdish region and give a green light to Turkey to make war on the Kurds, who were our allies in the fight against ISIS. Uh, the response has been quite fierce uh, from Senators Rubio, Sass, Cheney, Romney, McConnell, Hagley, and others, and most pointedly, from Trump golfing buddy Lindsey Graham. Uh, they have all denounced this betrayal of an ally. Uh, Trump has also gotten pushback from some religious leaders. Uh, Franklin Graham said he was praying for the Christians in that section of Syria. It's unclear whether the president knew there were Christians there. Um, and Pat Robertson said that the president was in danger of losing the mandate of heaven. Um, some of us did not know that we had a, <laughs> Who knew? a Chinese dynasty here, but apparently uh, that, that's now a thing. Uh, so Trump responded with increasingly hysterical tweets, one saying, I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, uh, will visit the equivalent of fire and fury on Turkey, if, uh, or at least on Turkey's economy, if they do what he said they could do in that phone call on Sunday. So let, I think we may have some differing views about this. So let me start with Eli. And uh, you follow foreign policy very closely. So tell me what your response is to the argument that you hear from many people that it is time, especially Rand Paul, it's time to let Middle Easterners fight their own battles. Well, before I start, I should say that the president misrepresented, according to my reporting and, I, and subsequently has been confirmed, what happened on the phone call. The president and everybody in the U.S. government had told Erdogan not to do this. There was a safe zone agreement that was ironed out over the summer that was actually more generous than other previous kind of plans that had been offered in this regard to Turks in terms of their freedom of movement inside of Syrian territory. Um, and the Turks had agreed to it and that, and that there was no evidence that the Kurds, uh, or for that matter, the U.S., were violating the terms of that. It was Erdogan unilaterally violating an agreement that uh, his government had signed uh, only a few months before. So what ended up happening was 
he, you know, that Erdogan was obstinate on this phone call. He said, I'm going to do it one way or the other. And at that point, uh, Trump blinked. And that's when you saw this original statement on Sunday evening from the White House, which said that they he was redeploying the U.S. forces in that safe zone area where they'd gone on these joint patrols. So they would effectively be out of harm's way. That was a grave error in my view. I don't think that the Turks would have gone forward with this if there was a chance that any American soldiers would have been there. That is the point of having tripwire forces. But Trump then made that decision. But then he presented the decision later on as if this was part of his grand plan to pull the less than a thousand U.S. forces out of Syria. And that so that kind of is the build up to this Rand Paul point. And the Rand Paul point um, is is really it's a response to an argument that was made 18 years ago after 9-11 or, or around 2003 when there was a you know, majority of Americans who were willing to send uh, more than 150,000 troops to liberate Iraq. Now there's less than 1,000 U.S. special operators uh, who have managed to basically, through force multiplication, uh, create a new, uh, you know, Kurdish majority, but there are quite a few Arabs and other um, Syrian minorities in it that was capable to do most of the fighting and dying to take back the territory from the Islamic State's caliphate. Um, That is extraordinarily effective bang for the buck. The notion that uh, we just want to stop fighting endless wars um, is uh, foolish because if Rand Paul were to get his way in this regard, um, then the Islamic State's the captured Islamic State fighters would almost certainly, that's a real risk going on right now, would almost certainly be out of their prisons and back on the battlefield. They would have more space to operate, not just in the Middle East, but to continue to uh, their mayhem in Europe and possibly in the United States, at which point the conditions would be such that they would require another American intervention. So it's penny wise and pound foolish. And it's really, in my view, a risible argument that uh, is not even worthy of a bumper sticker, let alone a hashtag. So, Damon, do you um, do you disagree with any of that? Well, my general view, as Eli knows quite well, we've tangled about this uh, over the years a bit, uh, often on Twitter. Um, my view is much closer to Rand Paul's position, although I'm in an awkward uh, situation in this case because we have Donald Trump representing this point of view and Trump is, well, uh, I I put it online uh, in these terms the other day and I guess I won't hold my fire now. He's he's really a moron and um, he really has no idea what he's doing and He sort of reacts impulsively to the situation in the moment. Whoever happens to have him on the phone at the moment, whoever happens to be in a meeting at the moment, and then also, of course, looking at the uh, inflow and outflow of revenue at his various financial dealings around the world. And we all know that, of course, Trump has had dealings in Turkey. There's a, a Trump Tower in Istanbul that he was very proud of about seven years ago, opening up. So, you know, exactly why he does what he does has absolutely nothing to do with anything like strategy. My critique of our foreign policy tends to, to focus on the fact that I don't 
see a broader strategy going on. I see a lot of stuff since 9-11 where uh, American uh, administrations of both uh, the Democrats and Republicans sort of have a general uh, a general favoring of American primacy. We need to keep America very, very powerful, easily the most powerful nation on the planet. And we do that by spreading out American troops and bases everywhere we can put them, setting up, as Eli described it, trip wires all over the place. And then we sort of try to control the world and what everybody is doing in the thought that if we do that, that's better than if we don't do that. So the alternative to America having a stake everywhere on the planet is chaos. That's a false dichotomy in my view. And I think that in many cases, we would be better off as a country if we tended to strategize in terms of prioritizing. So last week on the podcast, for instance, Bill Galston noted that he thought that perhaps we had overreacted a little overreacted a little bit to 9/11 and have ended up ignoring the threat of a rising China. Great conversation to have. Let's talk about that, but part of that has to be tied to the question of really you know which of those threats takes more of our resources, time, money, manpower around the globe and having to make those hard calls. We seem to not want to do that. So in general, am I in favor of pulling back? Yes, I am. But the way Trump is doing it is is ridiculous. What about the argument that, look, um, you may disagree with this or that deployment, but um, when you have an ally, you know, a couple of years, three years ago, when the whole country, our country was, you know, just hair on fire about the danger from ISIS, um, there were even huge percentages of the American public that wanted to send troops, and they felt that the that defeating ISIS was a high national priority. Um, well, in any event, through a combination of efforts, we um, partnered with a local group, the Kurds, who have been reliable allies of ours for many years. They did a lot of the fighting and dying. We helped them, um, and now we betray them. It, it, are there obligations to not betray allies that come into play here? Whatever your views about American overstretch. Well, sure. I mean, I'm a I'm a human being with a bleeding heart, and uh, I care about morality and betrayal and and so forth. And it's very upsetting what we've just done to the Kurds and what they have suffered over many years in many uh, tanglings with us, Saddam Hussein, many other people in the region. Uh, the fact, though, is that all the talk about allies is a little bit muddled in my view. Yes, the Kurds were our battlefield allies in the struggle against ISIS. By the same token, Turkey is a NATO treaty ally, which I think is a little bit more important in the scheme of hierarchies of obligations. And that doesn't mean that we should do what Trump did and just defer to er Erdogan and whatever he wants to do. But it also means that, you know, using the, uh, the uh, if you'll excuse the expression, Trump card of calling the Kurds our ally doesn't really resolve the problem because this is actually a case where a treaty ally is attacking a battlefield ally of ours. And so where we should come down is, uh, is a little unclear just by talking in those terms. Mm. Well, NATO's been a problematic ally for a while, and we're going to come to Eli on that in a sec. But first, Linda, you wanted to get in. Well, I wanted to get in because I think this whole discussion, while I think it's informed and we're learning a lot, um, has nothing to do with Donald Trump and what 
took place on this call. I don't. Donald Trump couldn't find Syria or Turkey on a map uh, if his life depended on it. He didn't know who the Kurds were, if you'll recall, back during the campaign. And I think this is uh, all about his fascination with strongmen <clears throat> and his relationship to Erdogan. And there's something a little strange going on with this administration in Turkey. Let's remember how it is that Michael Flynn got in trouble, the first national security advisor. He was taking money from the Turks, uh, trying to, uh, you know, do his own sort of foreign policy. He was writing articles that, you know, appeared in the newspaper while being paid by the Turks. Rudy Giuliani has uh, tried to intervene to get uh, a an investigation stopped against a Turkish, an Iranian but Turkish-born uh, investor off the hook in an investigation. There, you know, you mentioned already the Istanbul, you know, Trump Tower. In in Trump world, things like foreign policy, strategic interests. Um, allies mean absolutely nothing. It all comes down to dollars and cents, and it comes down to his own sense of whether he's going to make money or he might be able to make money on behalf of the United States, and his sense that he has personal relationships which trump all, that, you know, he is uh, he is the, the master negotiator, uh, he is the master of, of all relationships, and he does have this kind of bromance with Erdogan. It's, it's been there from the beginning. It's one of the first phone calls he had, as I recall, uh, after he was elected president. So, uh, you know, I agree that this is a, a terrible situation. I happen to be a longtime supporter, supporter of the Kurds, going back really to when I used to work for the American Federation of T-shirts. We were supporting the Kurds in those days uh, uh, in uh, in Iraq, um, but uh, I, I don't think that what happened on that phone call has much to do with about about foreign policy or getting America out of so-called endless wars. Okay, Bill. I know you want to get in, but and and say whatever you like. But I also just want to frame a question for you vis-a-vis um, -vis the Democrats, because there are a lot of Democrats this week who have been waxing indignant about abandoning the Kurds and about uh, Trump's behavior in Syria. But um, in fact, when Barack Obama was president, uh, nothing was done to help the Syrians or the Kurds or almost nothing. Um, so is there a little bit of hypocrisy there? Okay. I wouldn't say it's hypocrisy because there were many Democrats who were very upset with the Obama administration and said so when the president uh, failed to enforce his own red line. Uh, I would make just two points. First of all, uh, I think there's obviously a lot of evidence in favor of the proposition that President Trump uh, feels more comfortable dealing with authoritarian leaders than with democratic elected ones unless they manage to combine that, for example, in the case of Mr. Duterte. Uh, but the second uh, – second, if you listen to what the president himself has said, he cited a campaign promise that he had made, you know, that he would end the endless wars, pull the American troops out. And I think a lot of this, at least in his own mind, has to do with keeping faith with his base, uh, which is notably unsympathetic uh, to the idea 
of wars, particularly in the Middle East. Uh, the president took my breath away when as a, as a candidate, he attacked George W. Bush for starting the Iraq war. I expected that there would be a Republican revolt against that. Instead, it catalyzed a flow of people to him because a lot of Republicans quietly agreed with that judgment. Well, he said a little more than that. He actually said that Bush lied us into war and should have been impeached for it. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, some Democrats said that too, oh, in fairness. Oh, plenty of Democrats since we're, said it. Since we're no, having a, a bipartisan <laughs> discussion here. Okay, now let yeah. me make a nonpartisan point, which I think is really important for the conduct of foreign policy. But, but uh, and I'm not, I wonder what Eli thinks about this. We are getting a well-deserved reputation for being an unreliable ally. Uh, and this is having reverberations throughout the Middle East. I know for sure that as the result of this decision piled on top of President Trump's failure to authorize a response against the Iranians after, after they took out a substantial portion of, of, of Saudi Arabia's oil production capacity has triggered – And in, shot down a U.S. drone. Has triggered in Israel a sense in the government and some of them are beginning to whisper it and pretty soon they're going to say it out loud. You know, for all the wonderful things that President Trump has said about our country – if the crunch time comes, we should be under no illusions. He will turn his back on us in a heartbeat. So, you know, so this is having reverberations throughout the network of U.S. relationships. And uh, at the end of the day, if your word can't be trusted, then it's impossible to conduct either business affairs or domestic policy and certainly foreign policy. Let me just add to what Bill said because I, I think there's a couple of things that, that we should add. One is, you know, it used to be uh, an old saw that um, when conservatives uh, – when liberals are isolationists, it's because they think we do damage in the world. We're not good enough for the world. And when conservatives are isolationists, it's because they think we're too good for the world. And, you know, there's a grain of truth in that. And I think that the um, your initial point, and I thought you were going to say this, you didn't quite go there, but um, but the U.S. is getting a reputation for being unreliable that does predate Trump. Uh, that failure to follow up on his red line by Obama was devastating, and it gave a signal of irresolution uh, and and untrustworthiness. And further, Obama's view was more along the lines of the way I just described the liberal view, which is, you know, we, we cause too many problems when we're involved in the world. We need to pull back. We have nation building to do here at home, as he famously said, and so forth. And then, of course, you have Trump with all of, with all of his um, kind of scattershot craziness on the subject. Okay. Eli. Yeah, I mean, well, I would – I agreed with the point you just made about Obama. I would add the Iran nuclear deal was negotiated without – allies that would be most affected by that deal. So the very fact that Israel and the Gulf states were not at the table and Germany and France and Russia, you know, and, uh, were, and China were, uh, I think itself was the beginning of this sense of that America is not as reliable. There's no doubt about it that I think that Trump adds to this because of particularly his um, chaotic approach to statecraft. And the fact that he turns on a dime. I mean, you mentioned Turkey um, 
before and saying, you know, sort of suggesting that there might be some other corrupt motive. But it's also important to remember that, you know, when Erdogan did not return Pastor Brunson, he did impose sanctions and did threaten to, and he threatened to devastate Turkey's economy before. Um, I just think some of that is just his erratic style, which in some ways, you know, the optimistic view is that the world is sort of adjusting for it. Um, but I also think it means that it's unclear what the United States is doing abroad because, you know, Trump's statements on this week totally contradict what his top generals and diplomats had been saying on this really very, very, you know, powder keg situation with Turkey. Um, and then something you said earlier, Linda, I just, I, I would just correct the original reason why Mike Flynn got in trouble was because of his suspected his, the phone call that he made to the Russian ambassador. It was later found out that he failed to register under the Foreign Agents Registration Act and instead under the Lobbying Disclosure Act for uh, work that he did for a Turkish business and was representing uh, the Erdogan government. Uh, for that, uh, you know, he he was wrong to do that. But I'm saying that, that, that the initial speculation was all about Russia, which not only, you know, has not turned out, uh, but also, you know, I think that, you know, the, the notion that he should have been investigated under the Logan Act is crazy. Uh, and that there was a kind of overreaction at the time to Flynn, uh, which I think the Democrats are going or should start regretting now that they have much more serious crimes and misdemeanors from the president while he is in office. So this is um, just a, a very unusual role for me, but I am going to ask whether Trump made one point that is worth um, considering, mm -hmm. and that is regarding those ISIS prisoners. Um, some, well, there are several thousand of them that the Kurds were holding in a lot of makeshift prisons. My um, column is about to come out right now. Is it that they are still secured? I, okay. I interviewed the general in charge of the S Syrian Democratic Forces. Okay, excellent. So, um, for well, now. For, for now, for as like of... The, uh, for the... For, for the yeah. On well, Thursday. Check your watch, yeah. Yeah. Um, so these are, some, these are some pretty vicious characters, some of whom um, you know, killed Americans. Um, and... Um, but uh, some portion of which I think I've seen the number about 2,000 of them may be um, actually originally from Europe. And uh, Trump argues, you know, the Europeans haven't done anything to repatriate these people, and they've been happy to just keep them at arm's length, let them sit in these makeshift prisons in northeast Syria under Kurdish control. Um, they haven't really um, done anything to bring them to justice or whatever, by the way, we haven't either. Uh, everybody seemed to just be happy to let those people sit there. Um, is there a point, though, that the Europeans should have been doing more? First of all, yes. But there's some problems in Europe in that they don't really have the same kinds of conspiracy laws the United States does. So I think it's harder to build a legal case against them. But I would say that's sort of related to this. Um, there was a story that I was confirmed that in the last, I guess, 36 hours, U.S. special operators have brought into custody the most high-value detainees in the, of these ISIS fighters from these uh, Kurdish prisons. And uh, in my email box today was a statement from the ACLU, which said, under all circumstances, the U.S. must, you know, treat them, you know, with all legal protections and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, to me, that was an interesting moment because I guarantee you that they're going, they were treated far worse under Kurdish protection. And Really, what this is about is like he says, well, the Turks can handle it. But 
the alternative to the United States detaining these people, and it sort of gets us back to a Bush-era debate, is for them to either be killed, you know, held in, in horrendous conditions, probably tortured. And it's interesting to me because I think it does kind of turn on its head an argument from the left, which is that, you know, it's just going back to your earlier point, that America is this monster and we always screw things up. And in fact, the most humane option would be for more U.S. forces to be in charge of the detention facilities where the ISIS fighters are. That's not realistic politically for a number of reasons right now. But that is, in fact, if you care about the civil liberties, if you care about the human rights of the former ISIS fighters, then you should be an interventionist. You should be a neoconservative when it comes to Syria. <laughs> That's going to be a politically tough uh, case to make. Well, well, Damon, you're, you are humanitarian. I'm not saying that sarcastically at all. I'm saying it sincerely. Um, how do you respond to that aspect of this? Well, I mean, the United States can't take responsibility for the protection of uh, human rights around the globe. We're simply not capable of it. And it's it's partly, as Eli noted, uh, a function of political limitations because there isn't going to be support for that at home. But it's also just not a realistic way to view the way any nation can behave in the world. I mean, the, the, the world is still divided up into something around 200 individual nations. And we can do a lot more than many other nations in trying to make the world a more decent place. But there are limits and uh, so I don't, I, I don't really get too tripped up in in uh, agonizing about the fact that bad things happen in the world that ideally we could fix because it isn't a world state run by the United States. Um, so I guess that's a fairly simple response. Yep. All right. Let us turn now to um, the other topic that another topic that is huge news this week, which is uh, changes in the story about impeachment. Last week, we heard from Bill that uh, this was a terrible idea politically because impeachment cannot succeed in the Senate. Um, but um, but so here's here's what's happened in the interim. Um, there have been a couple of polls that have shown that support for impeachment and not just impeachment, meaning an indictment in the House, but removal from office um, have are up. Uh, the uh, let's see, there was um, a, a report that came from the Washington Post, a, a poll rather, that found that since July, um, three groups have increased their support for this uh, for an inquiry. That is, uh, so it's it's risen by 25 points among Democrats, 21 points among Republicans, and 20 points among Independents. Um, support, and this was, a, and then there is a different poll where from Fox News. Uh, they found 51% favor impeachment and removal from office. And uh, this included uh, some of Trump's key constituencies, which included white evangelical Christians, uh, white men without a college degree, and rural whites. Um, the figures were not 51% for each one of those categories, but in each one of those categories, the numbers of people who support removal from office is up. Um, so something is, uh, is, is happening. Um, we had the president release, his lawyer that is, the White House counsel release a letter saying that the president is immune from uh, impeachment, uh, that it's unconstitutional, 
and that it's an attempt to um, reverse the um, the 2016 election. Um, so let us uh, let us start there. Um, what do you make of the polling, and what do you make of the president's argument that he cannot be impeached, uh, that it's an illegitimate uh, and unconstitutional and partisan effort, Linda? Well, if he can't find Turkey on a map, he couldn't uh, understand what is in the uh, Constitution either. I mean, he's never read it. He certainly has, you know, no uh, familiarity with his powers. He says he's, you know, has powers to do anything he wants. He and says Article 2, Article gives, two him, right. gives him the power to right. do anything, anything he wants. Anything he wants. Yes. And so... Um, and I can't remember at one point how many articles he thought there were, 16, 12. Article 12. He mentioned okay, Article 12, 12 yeah. yeah, Article 12. So, you know, the, the man doesn't know anything. So, but, but the, uh, the question, he doesn't. He, he, he knows so little about so many things. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, he knows how to be a salesman. That seems to be mm, his. He, you know. he knows how to hurt people. Well, he knows how to hurt people, yeah. So, okay. And but, how to scare people. Yeah, but he doesn't know anything about policy. Uh, I don't know what, if anything, these polls mean at this time. It's all going to depend on what happens as the impeachment uh, inquiry proceeds. It's going to depend on how Democrats behave when the cameras are on and they are questioning witnesses, whether they do seem serious or whether it does turn into, you know, something that can be characterized as a, as a kangaroo court, which is what they're, the right is already trying to do. And frankly, the Democrats have given them plenty of ammunition. They've given them some ammunition. I mean, Adam Schiff did not behave. Uh, appropriately uh, in the in the first uh, instance uh, when he was paraphrasing uh, the telephone call. So uh, so I, I, I don't I don't think we should be sticking our finger in the wind. I know everybody likes to do polls. All the news organizations want to do polls and they want to show movement and it gives them something to write about, you know. But it's uh, it's not what is relevant at this point. What's relevant is the investigation that's going on and the developments that we're going to see, and then what happens in the process uh, once we get to actual hearings. I'm going to stick with you for just a second uh, about what do you make of these Giuliani associates who were just uh, arrested? Two Giuliani associates <laughs> tied to Ukraine scandal, arrested in campaign finance charges. Um, fleeing turns, the country. Fleeing the country, yeah. And it, like a half a million dollars or something. It may have been as much as a million dollars, it seems up to be. Up to two million, I think. Uh, up to two Wait, million. what now, is the look, two million? What was the these two million? phony straw companies yeah, that straw were created companies. to give to Republicans. Oh, oh, oh. Right. Yeah. They were they were money laundering money into a campaign is what they were doing. Right. And, and uh, these are people that Julie allegedly represents. Allegedly. Yes. Allegedly. <laughs> Always say allegedly. Um, so, you know, it <laughs> and they are the source, apparently. And Eli, you probably know more about it than I do. But they were the source of some of the information about what supposedly was going on with Ukraine having been the mastermind behind uh, the election interference, not Russia. That makes a whole lot of sense. Um, that you know, little Ukraine was in there. Hillary Clinton was winning the election, and and Ukraine decided to get involved and take out Trump. I mean, it makes no sense whatsoever. Where do where do you stand, Eli, on the whole conspiracy theory about the twenty sixteen election? It's bananas to say that the Hillary servers are in Ukraine. That's totally crazy. Uh, if you wish to say that um, there was a legislator in the Ukrainian parliament who decided to make public um, a ledger that had Paul Manafort's um, name on it 
uh, and you want to say that that was election interference, uh, that much I suppose is true. I, I mean, in the end, it's not like Manafort wasn't taking a lot of money from Yanukovych. He, his defense is that he, he was never paid in cash, he was paid in wire transfer, and that ledger was inaccurate. But that doesn't mean that the story basically wasn't right. Um, by the way, all of this was well known. I wrote about Manafort uh, in 2016 during the election when he was named. Um, anybody who kind of covered this stuff before knew it. Um, I suppose there was a Ukrainian-American who worked for the DNC who had asked other Ukrainians for information, all of which I suppose, you know, fine, but it does not add up to a massive conspiracy. Uh, certainly, it doesn't negate the information that we have learned from Mueller's indictments about Russian interference. Uh, it And frankly, I, I really do not understand why Trump would focus on that when I think there is a much stronger case, at least I'm waiting to see what uh, the Barr-Durham report comes up with, that there was certainly improper procedure in the investigation in the Trump campaign and later how it was dealt with, you know, after he was elected president. I think that there probably is a lot to look at there. And I'm sort of reserving judgment to see what they come up with on that. But this stuff just seems really thin. And uh, and then as for the Bidens, I mean, again, the Burisma is sleazy. Hunter Biden has no experience. Why was he on that board? It's a fair campaign talking point. I think it's all within the realm of that's fine. It's completely inappropriate to ask the president of Ukraine to relaunch an investigation into it. And the notion that Biden had this prosecutor fired in order to protect his son is uh, belied by the fact that this prosecutor was not interested in going after corruption and did not cooperate with a British probe into the very company that the son had worked for. So all of that is, again, I mean, those are the known facts. Perhaps there will be more. But what I'm suspicious of is the statements after the fact from some of these figures. There are two prosecutors who've recently sort of said, oh, I was trying to do this and I was stymied. Um, well, how did those statements come about? That's a, that's a question I have. I'm not saying I know the answer, but that's fairly interesting in that regard. Um, I was going to wait till later to bring this up, but since Biden's been mentioned, um, let's discuss. Um, I'd like to hear your all of your views about how he is handling this, um, because arguably, you know, Bill, you wrote a column this week. I would describe it as slightly alarmed column about Elizabeth Warren's rise, and she's arguably the front runner now and for the Democratic nomination. Um, and um, and it seems to me that Biden had an opportunity here to reassert his his dominance of the Democratic field. Um, if he had been strong and quick off the mark, and if he had uh, said, you know, repeated the kinds of things about Trump that he said in his announcement, that this is a, a moral challenge for the country and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, it is the, the thing about Hunter is is awkward, but he he could have there were many things he could have said, including you know, I, you know, Hunter's not perfect. I, I'm not perfect. Perhaps I, you know, just was um, too upset about Bo Biden's diagnosis or illness or whatever to, to be hard on my other son, whatever. I mean, there are many things he could have done. But, um, but instead, it strikes me and, I, you know, let's hear it from Bill about, yeah, I, I don't, I think he seemed unsteady, weak, um, and very, very quiet for weeks. And uh, you know, apparently he said to an associate, I can't believe they come after my family. Well, 
that doesn't sound like somebody who's been in politics for decades and especially somebody who chose to run against Donald Trump. What do you say? Uh, let the record record that my answer begins with a deep sigh. <laughs> uh, uh, I agree with you. Uh, I think there's, you know, I think there's more to be said about why this happened. Uh, I barely know Vice President Biden. I've never met the rest of his family. Uh, but in my own mind, and I'll be indiscreet enough to, you know, blurt out a half-baked theory, I think this is a tragic family drama uh, having to do with a good son and a bad son uh, and a father's guilt, right? It's, you know, I think Joe Biden is, you know, on the one hand, still grieving, and on the other hand, guilty. Uh, and uh, you know, this is this is totally unlike me. But I'm going to I'm just going to project, okay? And I have no basis for saying this whatsoever. I think it would have been entirely natural to for a father to prefer the good son following in his footsteps to the not-so-good son who had trouble finding his footing, uh, and then to feel guilty for that preference and to be extremely reluctant to do or say anything that might make life even a little bit harder for his surviving son. Uh, I am... I'm trying to make sense of what is otherwise inexplicable from, because from a top-down, outside-in political analysis like the one you just offered, Mona, uh, the right strategy here was obvious. And it's a matter of public record that many of Mr. Biden's staunchest supporters, not just his political – not just political operatives but also his funders – we're dumbfounded. Uh, and so I think, that, I think that when a seasoned politician fails to do something that he obviously should have done, that should be the beginning of a deep dive into possible explanations. And I can't – and, and I, I don't think it's as simple as I can't believe Donald Trump came, came after my family. Right? That doesn't have the ring of truth to me. I think – I think Vice President Biden is desperate for all sorts of reasons to keep his family out of this. And my fear is that he's, he's trying to play the game by a set of rules that are obsolete, that don't apply to anyone anymore. And I think this may be at the root of Democrats' fears. Uh, which I don't completely share. I think the Joe Biden of a general election campaign would be very different from the Joe Biden we've seen so far. But this is at the root of Democrats' fears that, you know, that in a time 
where we need a candidate from Mars, Joe Biden may be the candidate from Venus. Let me just um, mention that it goes back to something that Linda and I were talking about earlier. I mean, I'm not sure I would go quite as far as Linda does of thinking that Trump can't find Turkey on a map. I think he might be able to. But I do, obviously, he has huge swaths of ignorance. But um, I do think that he has a capacity to zero in on on other people's weaknesses and exploit them. And there is this is this is his superpower. And uh, arguably, that is what he did here with Biden. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, I, I actually wanted to I'll, I'll address that in uh, picking up from what uh, Bill was saying, which I liked quite a lot as a psychological uh, sketch of what might be going on with Biden. Another factor here, though, is also in the last just yesterday, Wednesday, uh, Biden finally came out in favor of impeachment, which prompted the New York Times to run a, a very interesting uh, story today on Thursday, going back to Biden's reaction to uh, the Watergate probe back in 1973 and early 1974. Biden was only elected uh, to the Senate in 1972, so he was a young man. He was 31, and he was reluctant then to come out and say that uh, Nixon needs to be impeached. And he gave a speech on the floor of the Senate in which he defended it, which the Times quotes at some length. It then The story then jumps ahead to the way Biden responded to Bill Clinton's impeachment in 1998, 99. And the end result of reading all of this, I think, really gave me uh, it gave me the idea for the column that I just filed before starting uh, this recording today, in which I talk about how there's a sense in which Biden is a kind of conservative, a temperamental conservative. And this speaks to what Bill was saying about a mode of politics that sort of isn't operative anymore. Biden is someone who genuinely believes that politics is about upholding the Constitution, norms, uh, uh, kind of trying to use institutions and traditions and relationships to cool down public passions, partisanship to kind of cut against polarization, make deals, sort of get along, compromise. All of these things are attributes of sort of what the Constitution as a whole is designed to do. It's designed to slow down, make people deliberate, not let people get their way until uh, it's gone through, uh, the passions have gone through channels and checks and balances and so forth. And that, I think, lies behind some of Biden's reluctance to jump on the impeachment bandwagon with Trump as well. Now didn't he's he, finally come along. Repub- didn't he tell the NAACP the Republicans wanted to put them in chains? Uh, well, perhaps so. I mean, that might not be the, the greatest moment in his career. But I don't think that that is the general tenor of his, his many decades of service. Um, I do think he has strived uh, or striven to to be a little bit better than that, and that he's struggling right now with precisely what you were mentioning earlier, uh, Mona and Linda, about how Trump, his his entire mode of politics is about denying that there is anything higher. There's no putting aside partisanship for the sake of a common good or the Constitution or anything noble. 
Trump is all about always having to show that your opponent is only acting for base motives and is trying to get ahead and trying to get power. And so uh, that's exactly why he has decided, uh, and another thing we might end up talking about, he's, he's decided that his strategy and impeachment, Trump's strategy is to deny any legitimacy to the inquiry at all, to say the Democrats are purely out for blood, this has nothing to do with what's good for the country, what's good for the Constitution in any sense apart from what's good for the Democrats. And that's, if he can convince the American people that that is in fact the case, Trump thinks that he can delegitimize it as a whole and win. Whereas Biden can't get himself to play that dirty. He actually wants to sort of do the right thing. And again, as Eli said, sure, has he failed in that in his career at various times? I'm sure he has. He's a politician. Politics is always a mix of the high and the low. But I do think that that's kind of, that's not so much a psychological observation like Bill's as a kind of uh, theoretical uh, way of trying to understand what kind of politics Biden is practicing. And I agree with uh, what everyone has sort of said, that it might be uh, sort of out of date uh, for the Trump era. You know, he was a little reluctant to get into this race, more than a little. And I think that family and family concerns may have been part of it. Surely he knew that that somebody would come after Hunter. There's lots of reasons to come after Hunter, not just Burisma. He's had a drug problem. He's had all sorts of problems. So, you know, I think that was one of the things sort of holding him back. And I do think that, you know, it's not that he's just Mr. Nice Guy, as Eli points out. He's not always Mr. Nice Guy. But when it comes to family, I think he's very protective. And frankly, that makes me, you know, think better of him, not worse. Mm -hmm. Bill, you wanted to get just in. Ve just very quickly. Uh, I think when it comes to politics, Biden's whole theory of the case, and he's made this very clear in remarks about his role as an emissary to Republicans during the Obama administration, is that someone with his mindset in the Oval Office could demonstrate that apparently irreparable breaches can in fact be mitigated if not eliminated and there's more capacity for agreement across party lines than today's hyperpartisanship uh, makes apparent. And I think one reason why many Democrats are sympathetic to him is that in addition to his being a nice guy, uh, that they do hope against hope that that brand of politics still has some viability because the alternative to it is too horrible to contemplate, namely an intensification, a steady intensification of this nonviolent civil war into which we've descended. I, I thought it was a real mistake to make Schiff the uh, sort of chief of the, the impeachment. The point person. The point person for the impeachment. And I say that not because he fibbed about you know, being informed, having the committee been informed about the whistleblower or, you know, reading that, you know, um, embellished uh, sort of made up narrative of what he thought the president basically said. Um, I think that, you know, Schiff and many others got out on such a limb with regards to Trump and Russia when it became clear that the central conspiracy that everybody was worried about and and was being investigated was did not was not true. 
he never he was trumpian he he said well, there's more questions we need to ans- ask and and this in fact and it wasn't just Schiff, but there were a lot of people who sort of had this view uh, and I think that that is really going to hurt the credibility of impeachment if it is meant to be anything other than, um, you know, a, a kind of pageant. If it's meant to have the force of what the founders intended impeachment to do, which is to remove the president from office in a Senate trial, um, then I think that they have damaged it by almost pre-impeaching Trump uh, on the Russia stuff. And Schiff is really kind of one of the worst offenders in that regard. I still think that uh, it was kind of amazing that he's basically saying that, you know, this Carter Page guy who is uh, a really, a real dum-dum and uh, has uh, cretinous views about Russia and, 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 you know, but to imply that he was rightfully surveilled by the federal government on suspicion of being a Russian agent when now that we have a lot of the evidence, not only, I mean, that, 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 that there were many problems with the FISA warrant, not to mention the fact that it doesn't look like he was indeed a Russian agent. He had cooperated with the FBI in an earlier kind of example of this stuff. Uh, you know, and this is the guy who is in charge of the Ukraine impeachment. I mean, I, what is Nancy Pelosi thinking? Hmm. I, I, maybe, but but I would just point out that um, the um, the FBI and the CIA surveil and and tag lots of people as potentially suspicious who wind up not being so. And the very fact that they were, um, they you know that they, that a warrant was sought doesn't prove that there's a corrupt conspiracy. Of course, it doesn't prove that. But he's the no. ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee. He read into the record you know, BS from an opposition dossier as if it was legitimate and defended that surveillance. So when it gets into the political arena, because that warrant was indeed leaked, which is never supposed to happen precisely for one of the reasons for what you said, and also because it's bad for the investigation itself. Um, I really, I'm, I'm shocked that we have not had Schiff acknowledge that he was wrong about that. And I think it's important because not because, you know, Trump is the president and he has done damage, and he is a big person. But Schiff is a little person. I'm sorry, I'm not Schiff, uh, and I don't mean to, to buy. I'm saying uh, Carter Page is a little person. Carter Page is not some, you know, connected wheeler dealer. He's somebody who's barely scraping by now in New York. That, to me, is a really dangerous kind of precedent, and Schiff did that, has not really paid much of a price in the media, uh, and it's one of the reasons why I think that he's just the absolute wrong person to lead the impeachment inquiry. Too, too bad Senator Burr is not a member of the House. I yeah, think I think he's Burr would be much, much, much yeah, more, yeah. you know, Schiff really, though, he's more sober. became so partisan on all of that. And, uh, you know, I just that's I'm just pointing that I just think that, he, that 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 they're asking for trouble by putting him in charge of this. So um, we'll wrap it up with this question. So the um, there's a group of um, former Justice Department officials, lawyers who have issued a statement called Checks and Balances, where they have argued that there should be an impeachment and that it should be quick because they point out the calendar is ticking. And if it's not done by the end of this calendar year, you start to get into January of 2020 and the voters are going to think, well, why are you doing this now? We're going to be voting in just a few short months. Um, So is that the logical um, position to take if you believe that there ought to be an impeachment, that it should be fast? Anyone? I, I want it to slow down. I'm sorry. Mm. And, and, you know, yes, there's going to be election in 2020, but this is not about elections. This is about the abuse of power. This is about the Constitution and what our founders intended when they put in 
you know, the impeachment clause and whether or not the behavior of this particular president, in fact, is worthy of being impeached and being convicted. So I'm not for rushing this through uh, just because we're going to go into an election year. Damon? Well, I, I guess, uh, I mean, I agree with the, the, the important gravity of what's happening, uh, as Linda indicated, although I would perhaps for the sake of argument take David Frum's side. Uh, he made a very powerful case about 10 days ago in the Atlantic that actually it should go as quickly as possible, that the, the investigation should be focused, limited on one or two charges Uh, about the Ukraine phone call and then possible obstruction surrounding it. And then it should go uh, to the Senate as quickly as possible, if for no other reason the fact that uh, the Trump presidency has shown us very clearly that people get used to anything. And if we're still talking about this next January, February, March, we're getting in deep into the political presidential cycle, uh, this is going to end up going absolutely nowhere. And then why are we doing it in the first place? In a better world, which is, I think, almost every political world in the United States that, I, that we can imagine, that's not the one we're in. In a better world, I would agree completely with Linda. Uh, but in the world in which we're living, regrettably, it is about the election because – I, however long the inquiry goes, I view it as vanishingly unlikely that the Senate of the United States will vote to remove President Trump from office. That would mean 20 Republicans, just to state the familiar number, crossing party lines. I do not see that happening. I don't have time to give you the full political analysis. Suffice it to say, I don't see it happening, from which I draw the inevitable conclusion that if the president is to be removed from office, the American people will have to do the job. And therefore, everything that's happening now has to be judged against a single metric of its impact on that election. If you believe, as I do, that a continuation of President Trump in office uh, for another full term would stress the bolts on the Titanic beyond their tolerance and the bulkheads would start collapsing one by one. If you believe that, which is not an apocalyptic view, I think it's a perfectly realistic view, then the 2020 election is indeed the cliche about every election, namely the most important election in our lifetime. And I am personally unwilling to sacrifice anything whatsoever uh, to, you know, in, in... in the name of constitutional purity or constitutional piety, I'm not willing to sacrifice even my reverence for constitutional norms and procedures against that ultimate objective, which well, is political. Well, then why is the court impeachment at all? I he don't. doesn't. I don't. Good. No, he doesn't. <laughs> I don't. I've, uh, yeah. And I, you know, I gave a little talk at lunch today at Brookings and – you know, it was a large table in a fully occupied room, and I believe I was a minority of one. Mm. Well, you are assuming, and I don't know, we will see, um, you're assuming that this will be good for Trump's reelection, and that may not, it may be the opposite. Well, I'm assuming, I'm assuming that if the president gets to stand up and say, whenever it is, late winter, early spring, you see, 
I was impeached in the House of Representatives on a purely partisan vote, which I think is a pretty safe prediction. Anybody think anybody, any Republican on the House Judiciary Committee is going to vote to impeach the president of the United States on any of the articles before them? I don't. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't. It will go over to the Senate, and I expect the vote in the Senate to look a lot like what the vote in the Senate you know, on the Bill Clinton articles of impeachment looked like, namely a straight party line with not a single Democrat breaking ranks. You know, my, you know, my over-under number you know, for Republicans is five. That's as high as I can count. And then the president says, you see, you know, I was exonerated in the Senate. Uh, and there, the Democrats are— You might o- even say total exoneration. Totally exonerated. <laughs> the Democrats are O for 2. Yeah. They tried with Mueller. They tried with impeachment. And there was no substance whatsoever to these charges, and the outcome proves it. Well, he can't say that if the Senate well, isn't— 47 okay. plus 5 is 52, and—, and um, uh, you know, yes, it, it would fail. He would fail to be convicted because that's not what the Constitution said. But a lot of Americans would say, well, a majority of Look, the United the, States. Do, do, you, do you think that the House should have a formal vote to begin the impeachment inquiry and that Republicans should be given the same sort of rights in the impeachment process that uh, existed in Nixon and Clinton? Uh, yeah, I do think it would probably be better to have a vote, and I do think there should be. Um, I think that's a fair point yeah. that, that that I've seen from kind of conservatives and Trump defenders. Yeah. So I, I hear you, Bill, that that's a very likely outcome. There's also the possibility, though, when you look back. So impeachments are always partisan affairs. There, we've, We never had one that wasn't. Um, including the, arguably the successful one against Nixon, uh, although he resigned, he wasn't removed, but uh, he would have been. Um, and uh, the Andrew Johnson uh, impeachment was partisan. Uh, the uh, the Bill Clinton impeachment was partisan. And though it is remembered now as having been a victory for Clinton, I don't think that's so clear. I think he was a real drag on Al Gore in 2000 and extremely um, he, he tarred the Democratic Party. And uh, it's not it's not so clear to me that this would be a slam dunk victory for Trump. It's it's it could be you may be right, but um, I, I think there's room for doubt. Look, there's one one thing in my old age that I've concluded about politics, and that is every significant political act is a wager on the unknown. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. There's no way around that. Yeah. And I've formed a view of the most probable future we face given different courses of action. That probable view guides me in every judgment that I make. I am fully aware of the fact uh, that I could end up with analytical egg on my face. But you know, in, you know, in circumstances of inevitable uncertainty, what else can you do but form a view and act on it, knowing that it may be wrong? Well, and that's what I always try to tell people who say Bush lied us into war, is that he was making the best judgment he could on the available information at the time. He did so in good faith. It, it was a mistake, but that doesn't make him a war criminal. I don't know why I felt the need to throw that in, but it seemed relevant. I agree with that. Um, okay. Well. Um, even I uh, agree with that. Even David agrees with that. All right. Fantastic. All right. So we are now moving to the end of our podcast. I apologize, Eli. That's I forgot okay. to tell you about this thing we're doing at the end, which is kudos to the other side where we mentioned something that somebody across the aisle did or said that we approve of. And uh, if you have something, feel free to throw it in. But if not, you will not. Uh, we won't put you on the spot. 
Um, so, Linda, you want to go first? Well, he's not really across the aisle, but he's somebody I sometimes disagree with. Nicholas Kristof had, I thought, a very good column, Let's Not Take Cues from a Country That Bans Winnie the Pooh. And it was all about the controversy this week about the uh, tweet by Daryl Morey, the mm-hmm. Houston Rockets general manager, uh, which caused quite a reaction from China. Uh, it remains to be seen how that's going to eventually play out. I guess the Lakers had a game there. I think it was the Lakers. Um, but uh, the point is that that uh, China is trying to call the shots now in terms of what American businesses can and cannot do and say, uh, you know, and, and they won't uh, – they're taking things off the shelves, uh, uh, the, some of the NBA's uh, – uh, mater- uh, various, you know, material that they sell. Um, swag. Swag. I, yeah, I'm looking for the word there. Swag. Uh, and um, and I think it's an important point. I mean, you know, was it uh, Lenin who said that, you know, capitalists would sell us the rope to hang them with? Was it was it Lenin? Well, it's probably apocryphal, Pro- but, probably it's, attributed apocryphal, but it's attributed to Lenin. Well, uh, I mean, they're, you know, that is part of the problem. I mean, they're, they're not particularly ideological and, and human rights don't matter much um, to a lot of business people, I, I, I fear to say. And uh, I was uh, I was actually very pleased at, at uh, Daryl Morey's tweet. Oh, but then he walked it back and well, he was he forced to bit. grovel. You no, know, it was really, it was almost like, you know, one of those, um, you know, communist uh, uh, self-criticism sessions, you know, oh, I said this, but, you know, obviously he did this under pressure. You know, now I realize that it's much more complicated and, um, you know, I was ready for him to put on the little black pajamas and, uh, you know, but oh, it's uh, no, disgusting. it's that that is really worrisome that China is using its vast economic power to stifle free speech, even in our country, in and United that States, yeah. and that American companies are, are they cave? Um, they are caving. Yeah, it's really really concerning. And I'll, so, so I'll just throw this in because my my kudo was on the same subject. It was on uh, uh, Julian Castro, with whom yeah, I don't agree on much, but he uh, he too said that uh, that the NBA in this case needed to stand up for free speech and American values. So uh, that was good. Okay, Bill. Well, very briefly, uh, first first of all, this kind of in- interference by an authoritarian foreign power in you know, a big sector of the American e- economy uh, is nothing new, unfortunately. If you go back to the 1930s, there was massive Nazi pressure on Hollywood not to produce certain sorts of films that would cast the German regime – in a dark light, and many of those films were shelved as as a result. But my kudo, and it's a very hesitant one, uh, goes back to something we were talking about before, uh, and that is that I think the Republicans, who are making an argument, I hope in good faith, that there should be a formal vote authorizing these proceedings, although. You know, the White House was simply wrong to assert that that's a constitutional requirement. That's ridiculous. And arguing also uh, in favor of formal and reasonably balanced rules with 98 as a not bad, not bad template. Uh, I think that argument has some merit. And if I were a democratic leader, I would take it on board because in my view of the world – uh, having justice not only done 
but the appearance of justice preserved is an important part of the argument the Democrats will have to take to the American people in 2020. And if it's, you know, if the president can argue that it was you know, a railroad job, unfair, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and there's evidence to back up that charge, even if, even if the outcome of the proceeding was something that a fairer process would have, you know, would have duplicated, then I think that weakens, that weakens the argument against the president. I'm against any argument that weakens the argument against the president. Damon. Well, uh, because I'm uh, definitely inclined toward Bill's uh, skepticism, if not to say pessimism, about uh, the prospects for removing Trump through impeachment, uh, I do enjoy reading uh, pieces that make the case for the other side. Um, and I've been enjoying the, uh, the columns of a, of a person named uh, Josh Krishar, who's a conservative columnist at National Journal. He had a very good column this week titled Trump's Presidency is in Peril, in which he looked at some of the most recent polling data, I, be I believe including even the recent Washington Post poll that, Mona, you mentioned uh, at the top of the podcast. Uh, so if you're interested in kind of bucking up your spirits for the uh, mess ahead of us, uh, he's a, a pretty good person to read on that. Okay. and I uh, came up Eli. with one. Okay. Mine is to uh, Rand Paul from 2016 oh. when he said that uh, America should do everything it can to protect the Kurds of Syria. He was right then. Uh, he is totally wrong now. But kudos to Rand Paul 2016. And a big raspberry to Mr. <laughs> Sykes and Mr. Picot, <laughs> who got us into this mess. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, look, look it up, kitties. Uh, <laughs> not Charlie Sykes. <laughs> yeah, not Charlie. <laughs> well, thank you all for uh, joining us. And uh, be sure to, uh, to subscribe on your various podcast uh, servers and uh, to leave a a review on iTunes. We would so appreciate that. And uh, thank you to the many thousands of you who downloaded our first episode. That was exciting. And uh, we all shared it on uh, by email during the week. So, uh, so keep it up. And uh, thank you all. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>